If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. This is the second part of my conversation about the differences between Catholic sacred music and contemporary Protestant praise and worship music. I sat down recently with Ed Sheaf and Audrey Thomas. Ed has been a professional music pastor with 40 years of experience leading contemporary evangelical praise and worship in a wide variety of evangelical Protestant churches. Now, Ed is my friend and is considering Catholicism. You've met him in earlier episodes. Audrey Thomas is a director of Catholic Sacred Music with a master's degree from Notre Dame University, where she played the organ and led the choir in the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. Audrey is also an instructor at the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization, where I serve as dean, and two of her courses on church music are in our online digital library. Now, in the first part of our conversation, in episode 17, Ed and Audrey explored the different purposes that music serves in the Catholic and in the contemporary evangelical traditions, and the criteria for what music is selected. In this second part, they discuss the practical challenges to organizing, leading, and developing church music programs. Now, all of you have sat in churches and formed opinions about what you liked and didn't like, and probably wondered why the leaders made the choices that they did. So, I think you'll enjoy this fascinating look behind the scenes with two accomplished professionals. Okay, we're back with Audrey and Ed, or Ed and Audrey, uh, however you want to look at it. Uh, and uh, what I want to do in this session is talk about uh, the practical challenges uh, for the two of you as, as mu church music professionals. Ed, you've spent, what, close to 40 years working, you know, in church music. I did it as a volunteer for a long time before I ever got paid. But yes, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been in it the whole time. Yeah, yeah, so for like 40 years, you've been doing church music in evangelical churches, Baptist churches, Pentecostal churches, hip and groovy churches, whatever. And Audrey, well, not that long because you're not even that old, uh, but you've been, uh, you're, a, you're a professional. So what are the challenges for music professionals and churches? And maybe what are some of the challenges that the people sitting in the seats don't realize are challenges for you? We had a, we had a class for new members and we would, one of the things that that uh, I did it a couple of times and my boss who was in charge of the arts department would do it. They would take new members through it step-by-step step, what we had to do to get to Sunday. And it was always a revelation. For them. You know, they, they, you know, um, I think they, uh, most people who don't play an instrument think that you just put on a, a, a cool hat and, and trust your luck. Right. You know, uh, um, so that was uh, the, but, but the biggest challenge I think to start this off for me was, marrying 
music that we wanted to do with people who could actually reproduce it. Because there were a couple of thousand people at the end showing up on a weekend and it had to be good. So I couldn't, you know, in, in, in the meeting, the committee meeting, we would, the arts department meeting, we would choose, well, let's do this song. And, you know, and, and I would think, oh, I'm, I'm, I got, who have I got on that? Because if they, if, if I can't, if I can't, re- if, I, if I'm going to do a bad job, I'm not going to do that song. So that was a, finding people to play the music and then matching that music up to matching music up to the, you know, and then, and then we would choose a song. Maybe you've, you, you schedule a song. You've come across this, Audrey, you schedule a song and then somebody calls you up on Saturday and says they're sick. And then you, and then you, and then you call somebody else who can't play that. And what are you going to do? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think one of my biggest challenges is I think a lot of people sometimes forget that I really depend on volunteers. You know, they're like, oh, when's this choir coming back or this group or this group? It's like, well, I'm doing my best recruiting and that's something I constantly have to do. But if, if the parish isn't participating, there's only so much I can do as a single person. Um, and so, you know, I'm really thankful for the group that I have of cantors and choir members, but we can always, always grow that. Um, and I think, yeah, just sometimes people forget how it is a ministry and it is something that really the whole parish or those musically inclined need to participate in or should, you know, maybe try to participate in because I can't, I can't do it all with just one person. You know, it it just occurs to me that uh, a lot of things have changed in the last, obviously 30, 40 years. But one of them is, is that when I, when I was a kid, Ed, when you were a kid, I mean, every school had like music classes, like as a part of school. And I'm like every kid, I remember when we were like second or third grade or whatever, they like choose which instrument you want, you know, and you go, I want the trumpet. And all these kids would come home with little trumpet cases and everything else, but you had music classes and then you had choirs in school and you learned how to sing and you learned how to do that. And so there was probably a lot of people sitting in your congregation who had some musical training. They knew how to play piano. They knew how to read music. They knew how to play an instrument. They knew how to swing in a choir. And Audrey, I don't know, today, I think there's, I don't, I don't think that the schools turn out as many people that, that have musical training, right? Maybe not the same. I know there's still a lot of general music classes. And I think from what I've heard, at least the schools in this area do it quite well. Um, There's good bands and choirs and whatnot. Um, But sometimes it's hard getting those kids, you know, are involved there to then get them over here as well. Um, And part of it depends, I guess, on the school as well. Um, there's definitely, I think more interest, more emphasis on the instrumental music. So there's a lot of people learning musical instruments, which is still a great skill, but I think maybe the choirs have diminished a bit. Um, and so it's hard to get those, well, Ed, those people. One of the things that you do, uh, one of the things that you've done very successfully for most of your career is to give music lessons, right? So yeah, off and on. I did. Yeah. I did plenty of yeah. it. Yeah. So what's that like in terms of making sure that, you know, there are people out there that have the musical skills to, well, that's what I was thinking was that, um, I was looking for it specifically, and in this order, drummers, and then bass players, and then guitar players, and then keyboard players. Those are the people I needed to do what I did every week. And they needed to be competent. And so I was, it's a small town, so I kind of knew uh, the teaching, you know, the, the teachers down at the local music store, whatever I knew. I, you know, I was in t- I'd be like, have you got anybody good? Who, who you got that, you know? Uh, our mutual friend Danny was a drum teacher, and he, you know, that's how uh, I, I would occasionally say to him, I really need somebody. Have you got somebody? So it wasn't, I was not looking to the band or the choir thing. I didn't do the vocal music at the big church I worked at, so that wasn't, that wasn't part of my thing. Uh, so I was looking more for those people, and occasionally I would do a horn section, and then I would be 
then I would, that's a different world. And then I needed those people who could, you know, who could do that. Now, Audrey, you need fewer <clears throat> instrumentalists, maybe? Yes. I mean, definitely if there are more instrumentalists, it'd be great to include them, but really I, I need singers. That's kind of the primary. I have to have cantor choir members. Um, and then violinists or like other instrumentalists always add to it. It's so like we have a violinist who adds so much and occasionally a cellist or a trumpet, those add so much. So if I can get them, great. Um, but it's like always this search for singer seems to be the main, main priority. When you, when you have instrumentalists up there, are they, are they improvising ever? Not usually. No, okay. we don't usually, we don't usually improvise together. No. Well, Ed, so in terms of improvisation, you guys did a lot of that. So if you have trained musicians, you can kind of do some of that. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, except in the world of combo band music, right? Ensembles like that. Um, Everybody improvises everything. I never had a drum. I had one drummer who could read music because he graduated from college with a degree in percussion and he's a fantastic drummer. But the rest of them, it was just whatever they could feel. I had a horrible moment on a Sunday morning. I think I aged the whole year. Um, <clears throat> I had a sick drummer and we've got three services and there we're expected it's expected right and and it's my name they're calling if it's not right right and so this uh this it was a it was a sunday morning and i got this young high school drummer and he was really a good player and i thought oh thank god this guy is available to me you know and so we got there to run through and i i had given him the music the night before i said just listen to these songs you'll be fine it's just you know and but the opening song he couldn't play the beat. He couldn't play the groove. He just, I, I was so surprised because he was a good drummer, but he couldn't get it right. And I couldn't do the song without it. And I said, I thought, I have to solve this right now. I can't solve this. I can't go back to my office and think about this because we're in run through. And, and on a Sunday, I have to solve this right now. And so I said to him, I said, play for me your funkiest groove. Give me something that you play comfortably and you think is cool. And so he did, and I listened to it, and I said to the rest of the guys in the band, I said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach this song, because that's the only choice we have. I, in fact, I didn't, even, I didn't even say it that way. I just said, you guys all hear what Kyle is playing? That's what we're going to do. Bass player, pay attention. Everybody lock in with him. Uh, so that's who, that's who I, that's, that was my, you know, so we improvised everything. And when it was unusual, if I would get, uh, people instrumentalists in a lot of them could only read like a like a, a violinist or or somebody who played a wind instrument or whatever then then i was then i was writing things out for them because they that was not their world right that raises an interesting question which is how far in advance do you plan right you know there's this old church staff joke right about the new music pastor or whatever worship pastor director who comes to a church and uh, the senior pastor says in our church, you know, your musical selections are due six months in advance. And he says, well, how does that leave room for the Holy Spirit to work? And the senior pastor says in this church, the Holy Spirit works six months in advance. <laughs> right. Right. But, right. you know, in practical matters, how mm -hmm. far out do you, do you plan? Do you have, Audrey, do you have the capacity to change things up on the last, at the last minute in the way that Ed does? Um, maybe not to the same extent, but I guess, yes, it just probably doesn't happen as frequently. So I, I right. try to plan by season. So, you know, at the beginning of Lent, I usually have all of Easter planned, you know, or try to try to stay one season ahead. So like currently I have planned through June 5th and I need to plan the rest of the summer. Um, so usually a month or two in advance, 
Um, and part of that is so that I have all, you know, for the sake of peace of mind, it's all there. But then there are tweaks. Like we had a staff meeting last week and, oh, we're doing Marion, you know, crowning this this weekend. Let's switch out the opening hymn. Or I've had once or twice, like a couple of weeks ago, I had a cantor who um, was struggling, like he had been sick and had some vocal issues when we were warming up. It just was not going well. And I said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to sub Amazing Grace for the offertory hymn, because if you don't sing, the people will carry you. Like we don't, you know, and so there are moments for last minute tweaks, which is where the hymnal does come in handy that we can be like, you know what, this one's not going so well. Let's find something you do know. It doesn't probably happen as often, um, but it is there if we need it. So most times we stay to plan, but we do have a lot of backup options. But that makes an interesting point, Audrey, that uh, in the Catholic Church, of course, a lot of your musical planning tracks to the liturgical season or the feast days or whatnot. Right. So it isn't always just like an empty, a blank canvas. Right. We would plan a series, a series of series during the, uh, during the year. And so as soon as they announced the pastor would say, this is how I'm going to teach coming up here. Then I would, we would start collecting ideas for songs that we could do. And, and is this a good song? Is that a good song? Praise and worship songs, secular songs, Christian performance songs, that kind of thing. We start collecting those. And then we would plan, we would plan out, uh, we would finalize a week, two weeks in advance. So if, if uh, on a Monday, a Monday morning meeting, I would know what I needed for the, uh, the, the weekend following, you know, 10 days, 12 days away. Um, and that, and then I, but I had to make sure I had people who could, who could do it then too, you know. For both of you, what is, if there's one thing that you wish that people knew about your job or your work that maybe people don't realize, what, what would that be? Like, is there something that, you know, you go, I mean, if people only understood, you know, this. Music is so uh, ubiquitous. You, you can get music on your phone. You can get music in the car. Everybody, you know, everybody expects it. It's so easy to get music that I think people are, have begun to think that, that it's easy for the people who make it. Right. Um, well, of course you can play that song. When I played in a, in a, in a, in a band in the bars, uh, in a cover band, people would say, well, can you play this song or that song? What kind of band are you? You know? And my wife said, who sang with us said to this woman who was drunk and she said, what kind of band are you? Cause we couldn't play a song by the animals. And, and Molly says, we have day jobs. <laughs> and, and this is the, the thing. The woman said, Oh, like it had never dawned on her that we actually couldn't play every song because they have absolutely no idea what goes into it at all. You know, you can play the piano. You're a really good piano player. So is my Aunt Margaret, right? Audrey, what do you wish that people knew about, you know, music in the Catholic Church that maybe the average Catholic doesn't realize? Yeah, I think they see us for that one hour, right? So they see that one hour of Mass. And so I think like something I get a lot of times is, Oh, you're full time. Like, you know, it's like, they're like, Oh, but you just show up and play to mass on Sunday. Right. So they just, they don't see all the behind the scenes and whether it's music or even just liturgy related, all the many little tasks that come, um, with a music job. Um, I think there's just a lot that goes unseen that sometimes people don't, don't realize. Also it takes, it takes a long time to get good at what you're doing. If you're a good musician, it doesn't take, you know, um, it doesn't take a week or a month or a year 
to, to be good at that. And I was aware of that even with the people who played with me. And some of them, um, I had to fire a drummer, a volunteer drummer one time, because I had, the, uh, I had like five really good drummers, and this guy wasn't really all that good. And I took him out to lunch and I talked to him about it, offered to pay for his lessons, you know, and after that, nobody would go out to lunch with me. Um, uh, but that's, um, you know, I was aware that these people, I would get these, I loved getting these high school kids who were really into it because they had been playing since they were, since they were seven or eight, you know, and that's, that's, that's how long it takes to get good at, at what the volunteers do. I don't think anybody who plays for you, piano or organ or whatever else, you know, they didn't just go down to the music store and get lessons. That's, right. you know. Right. Let's talk about expectations that people bring. Um, you know, we aren't in isolation. You know, we're part of, a, you know, Ed alludes to we're a part of a bigger culture. You know, we, we, we listen to music, uh, you know, from a thousand different places and we're part of the larger just sort of American culture or whatever. What expectations do people bring to church music or to church worship? that you find challenging? Well, this is one of the reasons I got out of it was because <clears throat> I lost touch with what was going on. I hated Dave Matthews. I just hated the Dave Matthews band and all the, all the, all the kids that other, you know, the young people in the church were like Dave Matthews, it's like God and then Jesus and then Dave Matthews, you know? And, and I just hated it. And it's like, he's ruining music. It's how I used to feel about Bill Gaither, you know? Uh, anyway. So I, I realized that I was no longer, I, I was, I was becoming irrelevant. I was no longer, be, I was becoming no longer relevant. I was, you know, what are we going to play for? We're going to play that Steve Miller song on the, on the 4th of July. Right. Um, uh, well now nobody knows who, who Steve Miller is anymore. And, you know, I'd play a, we would do G, uh, the doobies. Jesus is just all right. And we had a great time doing it and we did a pretty good job of it, but pretty soon, it was like, who? The doobie? Who? Who is that? You know, nobody knew these things anymore. And so the expectation was that I, that, that, that people would walk in and hear the songs that were on the radio that week or within the last several years. And I was, I haven't listened to the radio since, you know, Bill Clinton was president. So. So the, ex, so, so the expectation was that you would be relevant. Yeah. I mean, and we're talking like last month relevant, not even, you know. Audrey, what expectations do people bring? And here's a thought that I wonder is, uh, even though people are in the Catholic Church, which has maybe a different set of, you know, all the things you've been talking about, um, maybe a different set of standards or a different vision of how, you know, how music works for worship, but they still swim in the broad sea of American culture. So what do they bring to church that you find challenging? Yeah, I'd say there's two things. The first being that I feel like everyone wants, not everyone wants, but a lot of people are like, oh, well, my church used to do it this way. Like everyone comes with that background of they grew up with this, they grew up with that. So why aren't we doing that? And it's like, oh, well, we have, you know, X amount of people here. Everyone has a slightly different background and, you know, it might fit, it might not. Um, And so I think understanding that our, each, each Catholic church is slightly different and has their own kind of culture, even with, within these guidelines. Um, and you have to make those choices for your parish. Um, and it doesn't always matter what so-and-so down the road is doing, you know? Um, and so just kind of accepting like, this is the musical direction that our parish is going. And then I think the second comes with just all of the people um, that, you know, 
that, that, that say, well, you know, if we turn to the praise and worship music, if we turn to that, that's how we're going to get the young people. Like that's the number one thing I hear is if you play praise and worship, you'll get the young people. And so it always throws them off when I say that I'm an organist because that's not what they're expecting from me. Um, and that's been an interesting thing too, because I think a lot of people have this concept of like, oh, the organ is so old fashioned and, and dead and we don't need it anymore. And I think so much of that is one, we don't have as many good organs anymore or even as, as many good organists. And so if you grew up with, you know, um, a not great organist playing not great organ music on a not great organ, like, of course you're not going to like it, you know, and the organ isn't for everyone. So I get that, but it's like, I think just introducing them to certain things or realizing that maybe they haven't heard, um, everything that has to be offered in a certain way as well. And so just kind of that open, open open-mindedness. And I've seen that here because our lady wasn't really used to the organ before I came. And they're like, oh, I understand, you know, how this relates to him singing or, or different things. Um, mm. So we were we were talking offline, the three of us, about the this other thing that is kind of the 800 pound, you know, elephant or gorilla or whatever it is in the room that there is this consumer mindset that's so baked in American culture. We are we are consumers and everything caters to us as a consumer. Right? And every aspect of our lives, um, you know, not only obviously products, but schools and universities and even politicians, everybody, you know, treats us as a consumer and tries to win our favor and praise. And so there's a sense in which the consumer is king. Every institution, everything that I deal with should be uh, the customer's always right. Right. The customers, got, I, I, they should be giving me what I want. So how much does that consumerism affect church music or your work as a church musician? Well, it's huge uh, in the world of band music. And, and, you know, doing secular songs has, has waned quite a bit. I don't, when I, when I see people posting things on Facebook, you know, this is my favorite song or my, some big, some big nationally known churches, you know, it's all it's turned into praise and worship culture. Um, but the, uh, no, no, tell me where I was going with this again, because I, I don't know. I think I was thinking about dinner. Consumerism. Consumerism. Um, people. Audrey, Ed is a bit older. And so we have to continually prompt him. Right. It's like my wife, I tell my wife, don't tell me how to drive, but constantly remind me where I'm going. Um, <laughs> It's, it's so, it's still so consumer driven that it's one of the things that, that now appeals to me about the Catholic church is that I'm not being asked anymore what I like. I didn't, I don't want to go to church and then tell them what they should preach to me or play for me. I would like to go there and be, have them feed me. From, from, you know, I've, you know, you went to school for it. You've spent your life doing this. Uh, what do you, what do you tell me what I should be? Tell me what I should sing. Tell me what I should listen to, you know, and, and you, you've preached all, you know, all your life. Tell me what the theology is. I mean, you know, I, that's what I want to know. I'm, I'm tired of being a consumer, but it's, it drives, at least in the world I was in, it drives the whole thing right along. Uh, Audrey, how does consumerism, you know, Especially we're in this moment in the Catholic Church, maybe an inflection point or something where I think a lot of churches are trying to re-embrace their Catholic identity and tradition. And, and, and how does sort of the consumerism that you 
know, the baby boomers sort of brought to American culture. How does that play out or how have you seen that play out in your world? Yeah, I think we still have it to some extent. We have certain people, you know, always coming up and saying, well, why don't we do this or this or can we have this song? And you're always going to have that. But I I don't think we have as much of it probably as you encounter, Ed, with the consumerism. But um, I think with this refocus to traditionalism, um, we have a little bit of less consumerism because it's just kind of giving people this, this thing that they're not as familiar with and they almost don't even know what they want now, you know? And so they're open to it and, and they're interested in it. Um, and so I think they're kind of realizing, um, maybe realizing more so that, you know, it's not their request or not, you know, we're, we're trying to shape the liturgy and trying to present it in a way. And so I do feel like a lot of people are really open to that, which is, which is a blessing. Um, yeah. So I feel like consumerism, I mean, you definitely still see aspects of it, but I don't know if it's quite as big of a problem. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, this, so turning from consumerism to another sort of ism, which is generationalism, which, you know, I'm old enough to have lived now through in ministry, professionally in ministry, through several of these shifts where we, this is what we have to do to reach the young people. This is what we have to do to reach the next generation. And so we turn everything on its head and we try to reach the next generation. About 10 or 12, 13 years later, we're told that that's so old. And because right. there's always a new group of, you know, kids graduating from high school or college, and we have to do something to reach them until they get older and have jobs and have kids. And then they, you know, then so you go through this thing and you type you keep sort of chasing whatever the next generation wants or what I saw and Ed, you and I saw this in the mega church world. You simply break up different congregations. So you have right. the, the youth worship that occurs down in the youth auditorium. And then you have, they used to do this during the nineties. You remember this? They would have a church, uh, maybe a pro- it was a Protestant church and you would say, well, we can't settle on what kind of musical style in the worship wars. So you would have the nine o'clock service is contemporary and the 11 o'clock right. service is cl- these classical. Right. And they go, well, this is the contemporary service or the classical service. And then sometimes they would do like a 1030 service was blended, but you kept trying to right. do all these kinds of where you're trying to break it up or then, or on Saturday night they have youth worship. And so it, it gets weird because you're always trying to chase these generational trends. So you guys speak to that. There's an interesting thing. I have found that, uh, I, I found when I was doing it, that the older people who are, you know, now my age, but people even in their 70s and 80s, they, they were happy. They were happy to go along with this new thing as long as they thought it was being, uh, uh, it was working, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they were happy to get, could, you know, just one traditional hymn once in a while, or at least a traditional hymn played in a contemporary style, as long as they could sing that, you know, a mighty fortress or something in, in those, sing those words and that melody, but it didn't go the other way. The other, the younger people were like, no, no hymns. I don't want any of that. That stuff's old. That's interesting. And I remember that like in the eighties and the nineties, when the worship wars were going on in the Protestant church, there was a sense in which I remember. And at that time, those were like greatest generation people like world war II generation. Right. And that was when I was, you know, young pastor working in missions and everything else. And we would have these, I don't know, I don't know the right word would be, but sort of the generosity 
mm-hmm. of those people because we would say, hey, we're building a new church or we're going to do this or we're going to try new things. And like, we really think this will help spread the gospel and reach your kids and your grandkids and like, okay, if that's what it takes, right. you know, to build the kingdom, we're, we're sort of willing to give that. And, you know, it's an interesting point you say, because I don't think that gener- that generosity was reciprocated because the kids came along and it's like, well, we just hate all the old people's stuff. And I felt like an intrusion on them. I hate to see it. I, I wish that uh, my kids are my musical kids. And, and so we have a lot of common ground. But the stuff they listen to, I would never listen to, you know, and I don't like that. I, I wish we were all in this together. I wish there was some, some thread that ran all the way from, you know, my grandparents all the way up through my grandkids. I wish there was some thread that ran, musical thread or ter- cultural thread that ran up through it because it's, it's so fractured. Uh, it's like you say, you know, do we have a, we have a, you know, we have a band for the Sunday school kids and we have a band for the young people. And then we have a band for the early 20 somethings. And we have a band for the married couple, young married couples and a band for the people in their forties. You know, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a product of my generation. Like everybody is. And I, I grew up outside the church listening to, you know, seventies classic rock. Right. I mean, when it wasn't classic rock, it was just, you know, when it was like new on the radio, it's like irony is, is that you reach a certain age and you're like, all of my kids, the kids are always like, Oh, we love all these bands. And it's like all these retro bands to go. I saw them when I was in high school. Right. Like, yes. You know, like, uh, our bands were just better bands. Anyway, the point being is that I've gone and done, uh, as I'm sure you guys have, I've gone and done like, you know, chapel services in a nursing home or whatever. And it's just the most amazing thing because you have a lot of people who are kind of sleepy and maybe they're not a hundred percent with you, right? When you're talking and you're doing all this, but all of a sudden the, the lady in the corner of the lunchroom or the sunroom there will start pounding, you know, uh, on the piano, you know, great is thy faithfulness. And I, I mean, 50 people in that room will look up and they'll sing all four verses of it from memory. Because there was this shared experience in church of singing those hymns and they being ground into people. And my question is, 30, 40 years from now, will old people in nursing homes sing praise and worship music the same way that those hymns were ground into previous generations? I might have a second career here going (laughs) very late in life. Um, it's It's a product of... Of of uh, the thing that's going on in our culture, anyway. Okay, I see. I see. The the media is you know Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z and, and millennials and all that. I it, it confuses me because I well they're all like ten years apart. How could that be? That's not a generation. It's a third of a generation, right? So so that seems very artificial to me. And so if if that's being manufactured, then to what point? What what? Why are they doing that? Well, it's you know, I feel like they're, they're doing that to manipulate, you know, how can, how can they sell a 13 year old music if that 13 year old thinks it's the same music that their 23 year old brother listens to? That's no good. It's got to be my music, you know? And then that's, there's no separation between, between us as Christians and the secular world. It's all the same thing. And, and I, I hate to see it. I would, I would love to feel like I've, I've come out and been separate a little bit, you know? in those ways. So Audrey, you're so interesting because you're a millennial who is classically trained in sacred worship and 
chant and organ and all of those sort of traditional elements. And so talk about how you see the generational thing playing out in the Catholic church and in music. Yeah. I think a lot of it goes back to what we were talking about recently with education and like to keep, to keep it going and to reinforce what we're doing we need to start with the young ones, you know, and have, have them being taught this music because that's how it really keeps going. If, if they're not familiar with it and then suddenly they're in high school and you're trying to get them to sing a traditional hymn, they're going to be a little more averse to it because they're so used to their music outside. Um, but then something that I always remind people too, and like something that surprised a lot of people is like, I love country music. And they're always like, you're an organist, you're a church musician. You love, and I'm like, yeah, I love country music. It's what I listen to in my off days and just hanging out and like, but just because I love that doesn't mean like, let's, you know, bring the banjo into, into Sunday mass, you know? And so I think. The banjo mass. Let's not right. bring the banjo into anything. Yeah. Shaky's <laughs> pizza. Yeah. So I think that, that reinforcement of that, you know, like this is set aside, this is sacred, but then also to talk about the beauty of the timelessness and how so many of these things we're singing are, you know, so old, you know, and that's not a bad thing, you know, or like you were talking about that choir music, like we have such a rich tradition of choral music from the 1500s and 1600s. And that's not to say we can't have more modern pieces today, like definitely still, you know, keep using, we have a lot of really great living composers, so still keep using their music, Um, but not to lose the tradition that we've worked so hard to cultivate, I think is a really important point. Well, we, the three of us were talking before, you know, offline about the the problem with chasing generations is that I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that every generation since, you know, the ancient Babylonians or whatever hated their parents' music so that if you sort of tune or pitch your uh, church music to whatever generation, you know, is like the up and coming generation or we're going to reach the young people, as soon as those young people have kids and those kids hit middle school, they're going to hate whatever it is. And so then we start the cycle all over again. And it, and it strikes me that at least part of what w- it means to be Catholic or to be the church is to draw people into something that's, you know, timeless, right? Which includes representations from all the generations, right? When I was in high school, I was listening to uh, Glenn Miller's orchestra and a record that my parents' friend, grandma's friend gave to me. And I was utterly captivated. And I would bring my friends over and go over to my house and I'd be like, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. And I would play, you know, uh, one of Glenn Miller's big hits, String of Pearls or In the Mood or something. And I would, I would listen to that and, and they would say, well, that's, isn't, that's cartoon music, isn't it? Because that's the only way they knew it was that they had heard it in cartoons. Uh, and the cartoons were made in the 30s and 40s, right? Um, and I, I always hated to hear that. I would tell all my students, you know, uh, you need to go back and listen to what was going on in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s because that's what the musicians that you that you like were influenced by somebody and they weren't influenced by the people who are on the radio right now. You need to follow that thread back. There's a there's a ton of good music, but it's it's a losing battle. Audrey, how much of this requires in a sense education? I mean, what I mean by that is not like formal education, but continually kind of teaching people or bringing them along. So what opportunities do you have or do we have in the church to help people continue to learn and uh, about music and grow and whatnot? Yeah, I think it's definitely always educational. I think whether that's like a formal thing, like teaching a class like I've done or, or little snippets in the bulletin, or even just, um, I think consistency is almost the biggest educator because if you're constantly changing, 
I feel like people don't know what to expect or, or they are trying to chase the thing that they like or that they, they think is the next trend. Whereas if you just are consistent in what you're doing, I think it sort of provides a foundation for them to, to understand more of what you're doing and to start to see those connections. Like, okay, point. she chose, you know, this hymn because it connects to this reading or this choir piece. And I think just like consistency in whatever you're doing, I think would help with that. So as we kind of wind this session down, I sort of want to end with a little bit of a curveball or a little bit of a hard question or set of questions for both of you. And that is, what is it that you consider to be for each of you sort of the best and worst aspects or elements of your church's, your, your musical tradition? And what do you admire or dislike about the other persons. I mean, I just kind of want to see a little bit of back and forth because I'm sure there's things, Audrey, that you say, this is what's great about being a Catholic musician and some things that you go, oh, wow, you know, and vice versa. I, so right. yeah, whoever wants to pick that up and run with it. Yeah. I think um, like something that I really appreciate about the Catholic church, like I've said, is this timelessness and this, this huge tradition that we have um, and just the, the beauty of church music that we have and this wealth to choose from. Um, I think something that can sometimes be difficult is so, you know, we even still see these certain generations within it. So we have all this Catholic church music from the seventies and eighties and nineties that people kind of got ingrained and, you know, still see nothing wrong with, and not that there's something wrong with it, but there's so much better out there, you know? And so still having those generational gaps or, um, that generational chase, I think is still a really, really big problem that we face today. Um, I think like looking at what you do, I think it's impressive to see just like the amount of improvisation and even just the amount of work you put into, to keeping things modern. And just that takes a lot of work to do that. Um, and just a lot of continuous kind of ongoing, you're never quite there. Um, so I think right. that's really, really admirable. I, um, well, I came here for a wedding, oh, 15 years ago, I think. And <clears throat> there was some guy, uh, kind of in his forties or fifties playing the piano. I don't know who he was. And it was, I was, it was gorgeous it was classical music he wasn't reading it but i could tell that it wasn't improv it was he was playing something he had memorized and i thought oh i could listen to that all day oh my gosh that's beautiful that's um something i don't get in an evangelical church. i never get that in an evangelical church no matter how no matter how good the players are I, it never really it never really rises to that you know because uh, there isn't a tradition of that, of that, you know, and if a player is really good, it's always in an ensemble. It's never, you know, uh, the draw, I can tell that that drummer is really good, but he's not, you know, it's just so much a, a part of a, of a much bigger whole that, you know, I, I don't, I don't get that so much. Um, one of the things <clears throat> I will say though, that when, when a, when a, at its best, the the sound of a big rock band type thing fronted by a really talented singer, it can be really compelling, very compelling, uh, very, very moving. It's, it's hard to get to. It's, a, it's very hard to do. I felt like I didn't present that very often in my job. I just didn't have enough talented people to really pull that off. And sometimes, it went, it just went past everybody anyway. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would, I would, I, re, I can remember a couple of instances of, of 
going backstage and giving somebody a hug or saying, did you, did you hear that moment that we created there? There was that 30 seconds of transcendent thing, thing, you know, um, here's a thing that, that sort of bothers me as I investigate Catholicism. Um, it, it seems to me looking in from the outside of the church, um, that in its search for the very best, which I applaud, um, it, 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 I know this is wrong, but I don't know what the right answer is. Um, it looks to me like it's been narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down until everything sounds the same to me. I don't remember any of the songs that we sang at the cathedral, and I understand why they were simple and, I, and all of that, but it, what, none of it was memorable. I didn't go out of there thinking, what a great melody, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I know it isn't right, but coming in from the outside, it just, it looks a little boring to me to, to hear, to, to not hear something, I don't know, for lack of a better word, really catchy. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Sometimes a great, a great old hymn will be that way. Um, and, and I am, I feel like I'm, I should say that I'm willing to, to go along with it the way it is because I think there's a much higher purpose and I'm fine with that. But it doesn't, I didn't find, I think I said this in the podcast after the mass, I didn't find a lot of meat on the bones musically when I was, when I was there. What, does that, does that make any sense to me? Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to give Audrey the last word in this whole thing, because I think what Ed just said is really an interesting critique um, that in some sense in pursuing uh, you know, whatever we're pursuing, you know, excellence and, and staying within the lane of what is theologically correct and tradition and all that. Do we lose innovation? Do we lose creativity? And do we lose, is it not catchy? Uh, is it not memorable? Does it, does it, uh, is there sort of a sameness to it all? So I, I think we'll end these two sessions, which have been fantastic, but I want to give Audrey the last word to sort of uh, defend Catholic worship, sacred music. Yeah, I think I can understand what you're saying. And I think sometimes we do have a tendency maybe to oversimplify. So I think that is something that we do have to be careful of. And I think part of that is the response to things got so elaborate and got so away from the people that now trying to make it accessible, especially for those who are non-musicians. And so coming from that, that evangelical tradition, it might seem a little musically bare. Um, but I think, again, it kind of comes back to that we're focusing on the text and what goes with the text. And some of that, some hymn tunes are also certainly better than others. Um, I think also I'm probably biased because in my head, I'm like, oh, well, it's, it's catching a different sense. Like it's never going to be quite the same as like um, a praise and worship song because those definitely get stuck in your head in a way, almost unlike other things or, or unlike, but, but there are different pieces of sacred music that I do find get stuck in my head or in choir members or other people's heads. And so I think part of it is maybe a familiarity with it. Um, that's probably part of it. And then um, it probably also depends on the particular music you heard that weekend, you know, like some weekends there's really catchy things. And then other times it does kind of happen where it's like, okay, that was all good and fine, but um, it's not as memorable. But, um, but then other times it kind of hits at you out of nowhere and you, you see a verse and you're, you remember that melody and it, it comes back to you. Um, so I think it's mm -hmm. kind of a, a both and, like maybe we sometimes oversimplify, but also I think there's a familiarity um, that comes with the territory as well. 
Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you to both of you, Ed and Audrey, for participating in these two sessions. And uh, I think hopefully it's been educational to our listeners. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot by listening to the two of you. And I think this has been a great conversation as we try to uh, uh, consider Catholicism and answer people's uh, curiosity about it. So thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life. Especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast One Whirling Adventure offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher, unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.